Hey, this is Sabrina Marie. I look at the building abundance success series. Our primetime mastermind that promotes empowered focus, decisive action, and inspired outcome. Our spotlight is on decisive action with corporate sales trainer and coach Sandy Chiselle. He talks about how to overcome your fears and live your dreams. Conquer fear and 10 action steps from his popular book, The High Diving Board. Enjoy. In your practice, going from your practice to going through your health situation and then rebuilding, how much of that did you take with you and that you, hey, now I'm, I'm not going to be the average person in practice. I, uh, this is just crazy. I can't go out on my own. How much of those voices from your past held you back? Wow, it's all about those voices. You know, I, I in the book I call it the fear factor, and I came up with that phrase long before the TV show by the, the same name. <laughs> it, it was just like you get the, the butterflies in your stomach and the sweaty palms and your heart is pounding, and there's that little voice in your head. It's a, it, it's the um, uh, Robinson family voice, danger, Will Robinson, danger, danger. <laughs> And and you're, you're, it makes you back away, and those are all things that I took with me. And whether it was my mother's voice or my grandfather's, it didn't matter whose voice it was, but it was loud and it was screaming at me, you can't change. This is all you know. Changing is, and, and you know, here I am, I'm broke anyway. Uh, I could start anything I want, and I'm still too afraid to move. And uh, what a what, what a um, thing for that for me. But ju- I just imagine people who are healthy that haven't been through crisis. How could they possibly break away from it? So what it did was it drove me to look for ways to get away from it. And I started to see that there were steps that could be taken. The first one was to write down what I wanted. Okay. You know, not not filter it out, not try to uh, try to uh, pretend I don't have something I wanted. I knew I wanted to speak. I knew I wanted to write. I knew I, I, I knew I didn't know exactly how, but there were things that I knew I wanted. I knew that uh, I wanted to teach in a sense. Uh, you know, coaching was something that just kind of came as part of the package. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew I wanted to do those things. Put it in writing. And then it was about, okay, let's write to myself that I'm committing to make a change in my life. Mm -hmm. And so step one was to put it in writing. And then step two was, okay, you had these dreams. You dreamt of being an actor. You dreamt of of being out uh, in front of people performing. It took the form of being a lawyer, and that didn't turn out the way you thought it would. How about revisiting those dreams? And that became step two. Let's write that down, too. And then step three became, well, okay, even if I had a picture of me being on stage, it didn't have to be stage. Step three was explore what I really wanted underneath the underlying dream. Mm -hmm. And so I started to look at that and say, well, okay, the underlying dream here is to get out in front of people and talk about things that I'd really like to talk about, that I'd like to share, that I'd like to help them with. And so I was starting very slowly to pull myself out. 
And then I realized that either I was going to um, be so excited about doing it that I'd move forward or so afraid of it that I wouldn't. And I tried to imagine what the pain would be like if I was stuck in this limbo or I went back to practice law and I just kept doing it. And I said, well, that's a step. Let's let's feel the pain. Let's write down how great I'll feel if I do it and how terrible I'll feel if I don't. And so I was forming what turned out to be the 10 steps that uh, go into the high diving board that I use in my coaching, that I use, you know, that I that I put into the book. You're talking about um, overcoming fears, and, you know, people face fears every day, especially now in these economic times. You've got a lot of uh, people either changing careers and, you know, leaving jobs and going into business for themselves. And um, I wanted you, with your experience in reinventing yourself, um, to talk about some of the things in fear, like the butt monster. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was there. There are people have different names for these things uh, in uh, coaching. They sometimes call what I call the butt monster. That's B U T, not B U T T. Butt monster. Uh, some of them call it the gremlin. You know, the voice in your head that tells you not to do something. You're getting too close. It's danger. The, the danger will Robinson voice. Whosever voice mm-hmm. that is. And I remember I that show. <laughs> I remember. I mean, the warning, warning, warning. Warning, warning. That's and then right. You've yeah. got, uh, uh, Dr. Smith, who's scared as I don't know what. I don't even know why he was on the trip. I think he stole away on the ship or something like that. It's a, I, I, I've been to the older shows, you know, if I ever can see them in rerun because I was yeah. around when they when they first were there. But you notice how Will Robinson, the innocence of a kid, he's just sort of looking around at Dr. Smith like, oh, please, <laughs> what are you afraid of? <laughs> It was so yeah, funny. You know, what's this? And, and um, I, that's that's the kind of thing that goes through people's heads. You start to get afraid. So I figured out that what people are doing is say, well, you know, I'd really like to do this, uh, Sabrina Marie, but uh, you know, I can't because. And that word, but keeps popping up in my own conversation and in other people's conversations. And every time I hear it now when I'm coaching someone, I go after it because that's the but monster. And he says things like but or if only, um, things like that. And this is a creature. I, I gave it a, a, you know, I made it uh, an animated creature. This is a, a creature that's kind of a pet that our parents give us when we're very little. And we feed it and nurture it and make it grow. And then we stand it at the wall of what I call our safe neighborhood. See, a lot of people talk about comfort zone. Well, mm-hmm. I wasn't comfortable. I couldn't call that a comfort zone. It was just less scary in here than it was out there wherever you know, wherever my dreams were. They were out there, and that was more scary. And the butt monster's job was to every time I, I expressed the desire to go out there where they were, he had to throw a butt at me. He had to say, uh, yeah, I'd really like to do that, but, you know, I don't have the money, I don't have the time, I don't have the right education, I don't have the this, I don't... And, and so uh, it's something we created to keep us in that safe neighborhood. 
Now, as a kid, the safe neighborhood's a physical place. You know, you're allowed to crawl around the room. Then you're allowed to crawl around the house. Then maybe you can go downstairs if your mom's watching you. And then the safe neighborhood expands, so now you can go around the block without your mom, but don't cross the street. And then eventually you're allowed to cross the street at the corner if you're very careful. But as an adult, we create our own safe neighborhoods that are psychological neighborhoods. Uh, we want to kind of go to the same job and do the same routine. And we may be miserable. At it. Now, if we're happy at it, there's no problem, but we may be miserable at it. And so it's it's not a comfort zone, but it's safe. It's like we know what to expect when we go into that job we hate and deal with that boss we don't want to be with. We know exactly what we're going to get. It's not comfortable, but it's safe. So those are some of the things that I started to give life to when I wrote the book, Butt Monster, Safe Neighborhood, uh, things like that where, you know, it's clear that what we're talking about is fears that paralyze you. So I took a look at the things that I was afraid of, and then when I started helping other people, I took a look at the things they were afraid of, and I boiled it really down to seven paralyzing fears things that were strong enough. I mean, we all have fears. You know, there's people are uh, afraid of belly button lint. I mean, people are afraid of <laughs> all kinds of things. We all have fears. Uh, but but when you get right down to it, um, the first one was fear of failing. The second one was fear of being embarrassed. The third one was fear of making a mistake or committing yourself to the wrong thing. The fourth one was fear of being rejected, which would make you alone and make you an outcast. Mm -hmm. The fifth one was fear of climbing too high. You know, we don't deserve to have our dreams. How dare us try? We're not worthy to, to try. Um, the sixth one was a fear that we're not ready or capable, that we're inadequate somewhere. And the seventh one was the most interesting to me, the fear of success. And I truly believe that more people are afraid that they're actually going to get what they want if they pursue it uh, than they are they won't. Wow. Yeah, you're mentioning many of these fears. Were these fears going, and I know some of them were, and how deep were they going through your mind when you were in your reinvention stage? You know, you have two daughters and you have other family, and I'm sure that, you know, they're, they're looking up to Daddy. They're looking up to you as a husband, as a community person, and then, of course, as a person in a big, thriving firm at one point in time. What fears did you have to overcome just to get to the point of reinvention of uh, Sandy Chazelle? Oh, Sabrina Marie, I think I had most of them. Not all of them, but most <laughs> of them. And, and, you know, part of it was well-meaning people, people who really care about you mm -hmm. uh, are going to say, you're crazy, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? You know, uh, someone actually said to me, you know, uh, how could you do this to your daughters? You, you live in this nice house. They can go to whatever school they want. You know, uh, you're, you're risking that this is all going to go away. How could you do that to them? And it's one of the things that held me in my place year after year. Like, well, yeah, it would be starting over, and we never save enough money for me, like, to, to put together enough money to go out and do something different and have a cushion. And um, how could I do it to my daughters? But after being sick and after understanding about the fear and, you know, starting to put together the plan of how you get out of 
being afraid. I looked at it again and said uh, to myself, how could I do the other thing to my daughters? How could I go to work every day to a job that I hated, that they knew I hated, and watch them grow up knowing that their daddy was just going to work to keep them in their clothes and to keep them in the, the, the nice things that they had, and that he wasn't being true to himself and he wasn't doing what he really wanted to do with his life. And that started to make it a lot easier. You know? Oh, for sure. I, I'm sure it did because not only spiritually are you, you know, lifting a burden from you, you know, so you can yeah. be the best you you could be, but also on the other flip side, you're teaching your daughters that you can reinvent from the status quo. And what we're going through in this, these economic times, you know, you've got um, not only the battle economically, but you've got the culture being... Um, redefined as well as generations. It used to be when you went to school, a good school, a good college, you could have a good job for a long period of time. What your daughters were seeing is, okay, so you can have all that. Well, maybe that's not necessarily the way it, you know, you want it to go, or maybe that was for a certain point in time, but you've got to change. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because there's many people who get in that comfortability stage. They are great with that comfort zone. They're really hurting now because they've never had a challenge. They've always had that status quo. Their people have been in jobs for a long period of time or always at least been working that have been out. What do you say to those people? You've gone on both sides. You've done the traditional thing. You've been successful at. You've gone successfully through a trying time. So you've got that advantage. What would you say to people out there now? I believe, Sabrina, that it's about choosing Choosing to be a victim or mm -hmm. choosing to be what I call an action hero, what my friend Steve Chandler calls an owner, either be a victim or an action hero. Uh, I had this revelation at, near the end of writing the book uh, that worked this way. It was like I woke up from a dream and I realized that if I wanted to right now, I could write the story of my life. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't know what the middle chapters would necessarily be, but I'd know how I'd want it to turn out. Mm -hmm. You're standing at your 100th birthday party, and you look back at your life, and there's all your family, all the people you love out in front of you, and they're waiting for you to tell them something. And, and your little great-grandson great stands up and says, Grandpa, tell us the story of your life. And what's that story going to be? Mm -hmm. And you could really write that story right now, tonight, and say, I know what that story is going to be. I don't know what the middle chapters are like. I don't know what hardships and roadblocks and obstacles I'm going to have to deal with. But I know how I want the story to end. And all I have to do then is live the story. Or you could be standing in that room at 100 years old at your 100th birthday party and you'd be telling the story of your life, but you wouldn't want them to use you as an example because they know and you know that you didn't do what you wanted to do and you weren't able to give to your family and give to the world what you wanted to give. And 
too many people get stuck in that place where they're being victimized. They're, they're being victimized by the economy uh, instead of getting creative and starting to think of ways to do things and try things. They just say, I can't. It's terrible. Uh, you know, I can't uh, find any kind of work. I can't do anything. And uh, it, it's really just about a choice. And if you could show somebody that, that you can choose any time you want to change your life. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not saying that they won't have obstacles and that it won't have problems. But you're not stuck. Uh, the perception that we're stuck is one that we make up. Wow. Wow. And you reinvented and branded yourself in a different way which brought you to your second book, Becoming a Client Magnet. I wanted to talk about that. You had to really re uh, reach in and use all the skills you'd learned, not only from law, probably through your lifetime and your trying time with colon cancer and uh, your healing. Rebranding yourself, what was that like? And explain to the audience why that is important in business. Uh, well, you know, we think that, and you see this every day, somebody gets to the top uh, and then they're trying to hold tight to their position. And what they're not understanding is that the playing field, even the game, is constantly shifting. If you think about the economy now, uh, there are people doing exactly what you're doing, not making money, and they're making money. Mm -hmm. What are they doing that you're not doing? No matter what the job is, no matter what the business is, somebody's got a job. Somebody is making money. It's not random. It's something they're doing that you're not doing. So if you could figure that out or study it or, find, or, or, or pursue it, you would find out that uh, you can make changes to your life. And so Become a Client Magnet was about taking a look at the parts of being a lawyer that I did like, mm -hmm. which was I was very good at getting clients. So I started to look at, well, okay, what did I do that people who were complaining they didn't have clients weren't doing? And it became clear to me that there were some things that, for whatever reason, either because I was lucky or I ran across the right people, came very naturally to me or, or because they came naturally to me, um, that I was doing that always enabled me to get business uh, that a lot of people didn't know how to do uh, and weren't doing or were afraid to do. And that opened a door to say, well, maybe I could run seminars on how you get clients, how you keep clients, how you motivate your staff to help you grow your business. Those were all things that I knew about and I knew how to do, and I started to put them into seminar programs. And so here I am reinventing myself. Well, I had I had been a trial attorney, but I had never done any kind of entertaining, uh, uh, teaching, public speaking. So where am I going to learn that? Toastmasters. So I joined Toastmasters. I joined Toastmasters 12 years ago. Uh, and um, wow, that was a great experience to stand in front of people and learn to just be comfortable talking about myself, talking about business, uh, and I said, well, yeah, but now I've got to get 
somebody who wants to hear my seminars, and I was very good at getting business through referrals, and I was very good at getting business through networking, but this was a totally foreign area. I wanted to find companies that, that would hire me, and so I had to try the cold call, and of course I was terrified. I had never cold called, uh, and I, I realized that, you know what, if you do it and you learn it, it's not as terrible as as colon cancer. You know? Okay. Okay. Uh, and and there are ways to do it uh, that are not as stressful as some of the traditional ways they teach it. So I started to study those, and I got okay at it. Uh, but I also learned that I could give a seminar to HR directors, and they would actually come to the free luncheon seminar and uh, hire me to work for their companies. And so I started doing that. And I added these things to the things I was able to help people with. Hey, I knew how to do referrals and networking. Now I had calling people uh, out of the blue, and I had uh, I, I had uh, seminars to add to what I did to to build businesses and one of the people one of the clients the the law clients who had stuck with me who had suggested that I go in that direction now turned to me and said well you know I've just got a little office it's me and a couple of salesmen uh, and I'd love your help but I I don't need a seminar and I couldn't afford a seminar even if uh, you gave me one would Mm -hmm. you work with me individually and that became the beginning of what turned into a very good coaching practice that worked around the workshops and the seminars. And it was just evolving by itself, but it started the day that I wrote down what I wanted to do. And so now I was into this field where I actually began to understand that it was about attracting clients, not pursuing them. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that you went out and you had to, you know, pull clients off the street. It was there were things that you could do to get them to want to work with you. And in fact, one of the things that I tell people now is that your need for the business is about the ugliest thing that you can show a potential right. client. Right. Because you have they're not that. interested uh-huh. in that. Yeah, you have um, you know learning basic sales skills for professionals, and I want to speak a little. I want you to speak a little more about that. You had the three things: the ability to ask powerful and provocative questions, the ability to listen with total focus on the client. That is so important, and the ability to relate moving stories and metaphors, and in communication and uh, you know attracting, you have to be able to listen with total focus on those clients. Can you explain that to people? Because the art of listening before you follow up with an answer, many people have have a difficult time with that. They're trying to figure out what they're going to say before you've even finished, you know, your topic. It's like, okay, they've got a butt in. Okay, there's another butt. Explain that to us and how we can uh, better communicate because you're good at attracting. Yeah, that's these are all things that I just love talking about because this is uh to me it's it's so basic and to some people it's so foreign. So I'm going to go right there where you asked. 
most people think that, um, first of all, if you're a professional or you're, uh, you sell a service or you own a business that sells a service, um, you hate marketing and sales. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason you hate it is you're under the impression that your job is to go up to total strangers and somehow manipulate them into buying your product whether they need it or not. And uh, attracting is all about being much more uh, authentic. And to me, the definition of sales isn't manipulating somebody into, uh, to, uh, you know, uh, agree to buy something that they don't really want. Uh, to me, the definition of sales is asking appropriate questions so that someone who's listening to you uh, and, and giving you the answers sees for himself that he does need what you want or that he doesn't. Mm-hmm. And that's a very different approach. Instead of telling people, oh, this is what I can do and this is how I do it and this is what I want, spend the time doing basically what you're doing with me is asking questions about what they're doing now, why they're doing it that way. How, you know, is it working for them? Have they considered other ways to do it? Would they like to know about another way to do it? Um, what's the what's good about what they're doing? What's bad about what they're doing? Asking those questions, and the better the questions, the more compelling the questions, the more they're going to open up uh, and realize that you're someone they should be working with. And what I tell people is anything that you can tell a client, you can get them to tell you if you ask the right questions. And if they tell you, they own it, not you. You didn't tell them, they told you. It makes them and feel better about working with you, too. Yeah, because because we are all tuned into, and you, you saw this in the book, I know, radio station WIIFM, what's in it for me? People are all focused on them. Their favorite subject is them. The thing that they want to talk about is them. They don't care about whether you get business or not or what you do or how what you do works. They want to be able to say, hey, I have these problems. Can you solve them? I'm in this situation. Can you make this situation better? It's all about them. And we, if we're selling services to people, we have to be sensitive to that. So... The way that you do it is not telling them stuff, it's asking them stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, the listening part, uh, that's, most of us are waiting to talk listeners. Mm-hmm. We are listening to the answer, but we're not really listening to the answer. We're formulating how we're going to respond to the first part of the answer and what we're going to say next. And you have to learn, and it takes time to learn. It doesn't come naturally, like you, you and you said that. Um, it takes time to learn to just listen, to actually watch the body language, watch what they're saying, watch what they're not saying, um, uh, listen for the inflections in the voice, uh, listen for what's probably behind why they ask the question in the first place. Be totally focused on the question. You'll have time to answer it later. Mm-hmm. And this is something I don't think anybody's perfect at, including me, but the more that we do it, um, the more 
they sense it, the, the, the prospect, the, the prospective client, the prospect, the, the, the person that might be using our services, the more they, they sense it, like you're really listening to me. Mm-hmm. You really get it. And we have people who teach, you know, active listening where you say, uh-huh, and you repeat it back to them, and you're still not doing it. You're still not there. You're just doing something you learned to do to make it look like you're there. Right. <laughs> um, and that's right. really important. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that, that, in your, um, you know, explaining to us about uh, really getting in there with the client, I wanted to also uh, mention that in the uh, becoming a client magnet, you stress the importance of in working with clients or wanting to work with clients, being able to tell them what you do. And at sandyshisel.com, I, I like your little tagline, it's helping professional firms attract and keep clients. Yeah. What can you tell people uh, because they stumble over, well, what, what do you do? Well, they've got a 100 or 200 word <laughs> dialogue going on with you about what they do. And they can't pinpoint what exactly they stand for. And that's all part of the communication. All a part of the We're, communication. Oh, for sure, for sure. Where, wherever I go, it always boils. There's something I have called the marketing toolkit, and it basically consists of five parts. Uh, who your ideal client is, mm-hmm. uh, a description of who your ideal client is, uh, what is one of their core needs, what is it that they need that you can deliver. I mean, if you're not a dentist, then they need their teeth fixed, I mean, that, but, but that you can deliver. Um, uh, what result they get from working with you is the third one. Stories about the result, examples of the result is the fourth one. And the fifth one is that marketing term uh, uh, the, uh, you know, that has to do with what makes you unique, the unique selling proposition, the unique competitive advantage. Uh, but uh, when you're telling somebody what you do, uh, you need to get their attention. So if I look at um, the target and the need by themselves, they can be put together into what I call an audio billboard. Now, some people talk about the elevator speech. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the, the concept of the elevator speech having some pithy thing to say when somebody asks you what you do. But I want you to be very clear that in a short time, uh, you have to get their attention. It's all about getting their attention so they'll engage in conversation with you. Mm-hmm. And um, I call it the audio billboard because I imagine that you're driving down the highway at 75 miles an hour and you see what you usually say when somebody says, well, what do you do? Uh, you see that up on the billboard. Are you going to hit the brakes and slow down to read it or are you going to drive right past it because it's kind of boring and, and it isn't really very focused? And most people would drive right past their own audio billboard. So I say look at the first two tools in the toolkit, which is pick a client, pick an ideal client. Nobody knows who your favorite client is unless you kind of explain it to them. And if you're in business already, you know who your favorite clients are. What do they have in common? What can you say is my client 
uh, people, you know, certain kind of people, certain kind of need, so maybe a certain age group, maybe a certain economic, socioeconomic situation, depending on the business. This is the person who would be my ideal client. And the thing that he needs the most from me is this. So for me, it's service professionals uh, who uh, are maybe very good at what they do, but struggling to grow their business. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm getting the struggle, the need, something emotional that somebody can uh, react to. Uh, and at the same time, I'm getting the target. And if I say something like that, that that's who I work with, people will say, well, you mean like lawyers or, or do you mean or, or how do you do that or something? And you've engaged them. Mm-hmm. You get a financial professional goes up and says, "Yeah, I'm a financial professional," and their their eyes their eyes glaze over. They've seen thousands of them, mm-hmm. and one of the one of the concepts I came up with is the concept of the red crayon, mm-hmm. and that is that. If a six-year-old got some white paper and sat down and opened a box of crayons and looked in the box and saw 16 white crayons in the box, which crayon is she going to pull out? And the answer is, doesn't matter. Um, but if there's a red one in the box, you know exactly which one she's going for. Mm-hmm. And so you start with that audio billboard, who's your target, what's their need, and then make yourself the red crayon for that group. Mm-hmm. And how you do it is all what the book is about. Now, you've got your target market down pat. They've read your book. They've got that and they're rearing to go. Okay? They've got their clients, the follow-up. This is where people really miss the mark in business, following up with prospects and following up with people. How do you go about that, to do it in a, doing it in a successful manner? Because, uh, you know, many people drop the ball. They said, okay, I gave my presentation, and if they're interested, <laughs> they'll call. Yeah, so you're talking about you actually made the presentation, and mm-hmm. now you've done all you just from. said. They've done all you just said. They've got their clients. And uh, they've got to prospect right there, and they are afraid to follow through or follow up. Yeah, you know, this this whole concept of fear gets back into it, afraid mm-hmm. to follow up, afraid to follow through. Mm-hmm. If you did the whole process right, and it's something that I train people on and I coach people on, if you did the whole process uh, right, uh, you would. It used to be, and even Tom Hopkins recognizes this is not the case anymore. Uh, it used to be that you needed some kind of close. How do I close them? But mm-hmm. if you do what I've been talking about, which is asking them questions that lead them to the conclusion that this is something I need, they'll be asking you, well, what's the next step? What do we do? Mm-hmm. And if they don't, you can certainly say to them, hey, what do you think the next step is? Well, I guess I give you a check and then you prepare some kind of agreement. Um, Or you can say, well, look, you know, we're at that point where I've basically told you everything I can tell you. Do you want to do this? Mm -hmm. And to me, a yes or a no doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. A no will get me to ask a question. Well, that's okay. Uh, Uh But would you mind explaining why? 
Right. Uh, and now I can learn something from it and maybe even turn it around again. And a yes means, hey, I've got a check, I've got a client, I've got business, that's great. Uh, we get so wrapped up in the need for that new client that the first rule that I gave you, which is that you got to keep your need out of it, mm-hmm. um, is violated. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so the idea uh, that you, the scenario that you presented, Sabrina Marie, when we get down to that moment, um, that doesn't happen if you do this right. That doesn't mm-hmm. happen if you use a system like I use. Uh, which says, no, okay, we're going to determine together what the next step is. Sometimes the next step is, you know, I, I do need to think about it and there are people I need to talk to, in which case you narrow down and clarify what it is they need to think about, what it is they need to talk to about, who it is they need to talk to and how you can help with the input to that. 